Welcome to the Salty and Shiny Life Podcast, where our faith guides us and we get to learn from each other. I'm your host, Erin, with Mathena Counseling and Consulting. Join us as we dive into ways we can embrace our faith and make a positive impact on the world around us as we learn from the journeys and experiences of others. Get ready to be encouraged, uplifted, and equipped as we learn from one another. Together, we can become the best versions of ourselves and shine brightly in a world that needs hope. It's time to live the salty and shiny life. And please don't forget to like and share with your friends. Well, we are here with Jeff Mathena. I am so excited to get to interview him today. Um, For those of you who don't know this and haven't made the connection, Jeff Mathena is my little brother, and he is just a phenomenal worship leader and vocal coach. He works with some of the biggest names in Christian music, um, and I'm just really excited to get to have a talk with him today and for him to be on the Salty Shiny Life podcast. Now, you may notice it's a different setup, which I'm also excited about, kind of like this. Um, I'm on the road. I'm in Texas. So that's why we get to be live and in person. So that is also exciting and fun. Um, got to leave South Carolina and bring all my stuff so we could have a, an interview here in Texas. Here in your studio, even. I love it. This is really cool. I had never gotten, I hadn't seen your house yet, and I love it. Yeah, we haven't been here that long. Yeah, that's awesome. Welcome to it. Very cool. So, um, we have been, we were talking about how we want to be able to talk about, you know, the sound of revival and, and I'm, I'm really excited to ask some questions and hear your insight on all these, on these different topics and these different questions. So I'm ready to dive in if you are. I'm ready. Okay. So how would you describe the concept of the sound of revival and its significance for the church? Yeah. I'm well, first of all, I think, um, it's probably kind of a new concept just to say that um, revival necessitates sound. Um, Ooh, I like that. That, I mean, revival, I think if we think of revival, we think of uh, people coming to Jesus, um, people becoming more devout in their faith, people becoming more serious about their faith. So, so there's a widening of the gospel going to more people, but there's also a deepening of faith uh, for people that are within the church that they become more passionate, um, you know, uh, and, and then there's also an aspect of, of we're seeing God move and do that. And none of that really necessarily implies anything about the sound of the church or the, mm-hmm. the way we're singing or anything like that. Um, but I, I think that revival necessitates there being a certain kind of sound um, coming from the church. Um, And the reason I say that is because sound is the significance of sound in creation can, uh, cannot be overstated. So first of all, if you look at, uh, if you look at the universe from a, from quantum a quantum mechanics perspective so quantum mechanics goes beyond the subatomic you have atoms 
and then you have the subatomic particles, which are neutrons and electrons and protons. If you go beyond those to the absolute smallest breakdown of everything, mm -hmm. what we find is that everything is vibrating. Everything is mm, made yeah. of energy. Everything's essentially made of sound waves. And then you consider that God um, used his voice to bring everything into existence. Yes. So the, the building blocks mm. of everything, I mean, the, this chair, you and me, um, even our thoughts and our emotions are producing energy and vibration. So everything broken down, like th th this chair and my emotions are actually made fun on a fundamental level, small, most broke down level. They are made of the same thing, mm -hmm. which is vibrations that I would say it's theologically accurate. It's theologically appropriate to say that those are reverberations of God's voice. So when you say that there's sound accompanies revival or revival has a sound, um, everything has a sound. Yeah. But when you look throughout scripture and you say, well, what role does sound or what role specifically does the voice of the church play? Um, in, in on the goings on of the church. And we look at things like Jehoshaphat sending the Levites into, uh, into battles at second Chronicles 20, where he's, he's there. The kingdom of Judah is, is going against this, going up against this army that's just insurmountable, this army of hybrids. It's like a bunch of Goliaths in this, this army. And, um, and there's just no hope that they're going to be able to beat this army. And a prophet comes to Jehoshaphat and says, don't worry about it. God's going to give you the victory. And so Jehoshaphat's response is to say, okay, well, I'm going to send the Levites. I'm going to send the worship leaders. I'm going to put them in full ceremonial robe, and they're going to march into battle in the middle of the army and lead the army in praise and worship. And then what happens is as they're singing, it confuses the enemy and the armies. There are these three separate armies, these pagan nations don't necessarily like each other, but they all hate Israel more than they hate each other. But as, <laughs> as they hear to, as they, as they're hearing this song, it confuses them and they turn on each other and they wipe each other out. Um, there was, I, I, I want to know what that sounded like. And, um, I mm. think that the sound that they produced played a role. Like what's really interesting if you say, well, they wouldn't have marched into battle singing if God had not spoken to the prophet and said, don't worry, I'm going to give you victory. And yet it's the fact that they rode, that they, they marched into battle singing. God then used that action to bring them victory. Yeah. And so, um, hmm. and so I wonder if the church today was called to do the same thing God said, Hey, there's a battle and don't worry, I'm going to give you the victory. Just sing, you know, what would the church sound the same? Would it sound as glorious as it did back then? Obviously there's no way to really answer that question. Right. Maybe we'd go back and in time and they'd just be completely out of tune and we'd be like, Oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. And God uses it. And God can use things that are way off key. Like God he can do whatever all. the heck he wants. <laughs> yes. Right. But my hunch is like the Levites took their craft really seriously. Right. Right. That was their job. That was their entire. And, and God, like when you look at music theory, music, th this is really kind of morphing into, I'm going on a tangent when it comes to excellence and what excellence means. Excellence is not about the outcome. Excellence is about the process. That's the most important thing. But, um, God is a God of order. 
And when we look at sound, the science of sound and the sounds of, of frequency, there are certain frequencies that bring order to the universe and there are certain frequencies that bring chaos into the universe. And so when we are talking about the sound that the church produces, yes, God can use any sound that we produce in any way that he sees fit. However, the excellence is a process, but the outcome of that process should be something that brings about order and beauty. Beauty and order really are synonymous. Mm -hmm. um, that that anything well. that is beautiful is going to be a, a result of something aligning with what God created it to be. There's no such thing as something falling out of alignment with God's intention and it also being beautiful. Well, they're even even in physical beauty, they talk about it's the perfectly symmetrical face that shows up scientifically as the most beautiful, which is order. I'm, I'm seeing, yeah. I'm feeling it's not exactly the same, but there's order to it. Well, I that think, is beauty. I, that I is, think even more, more appropriately would be to say that, um, when somebody ages, obviously like beauty is subjective and there are things that are beautiful about aging. But if, if we're just looking, if we're just looking at some of these physical appearance, mm -hmm. wrinkles come into play, poor posture can come into play, disease comes into play. Like mm -hmm. those, those kinds of things happen because we're aging and the way that God created things to be was that we would not age. So, so the aging process is counter to the way God created things to Originally, exist. Yeah. God also created music to exist in a particular way. He, he created art to exist in a particular way. Mm hmm. And what happens when the frequencies shift out of alignment with what God created them to be is they actually will bring disorder. And the, the people that are confused by things like, what does he mean by that? There are, you, you can watch stuff on YouTube, um, these experiments where they will put this plate with sand on top of it and a speaker underneath the plate. Have you seen these? Uh -huh. And they'll, they'll emit a certain frequency or different frequencies um, underneath the plate and certain frequencies, what will happen is in the, the sand will vibrate and, and shift into a geometric pattern. Yes. And then there are that. other frequencies that just make the sand all jumbled up. And then even doctors in the West, like this isn't woo-woo. Like this is doctors, <laughs> MDs. It's just accepted that they use tuning forks. They use frequencies yeah. in their treatment of disease. They, they realize scientifically that certain diseases respond to different frequencies in different ways. Um, I mean, and this research goes all the way back to the 1930s is, is really when it first started happening. It was, it was more so, uh, uh, going down a little bit into deep water here, but like there, there was research actually being done about how certain frequencies can harm people be used to intentionally well, harm people. Yes. Um, but what it found was that there are frequencies that bring unity in the body or disunity in the body. And, uh, so the point is we get back to the idea of sound revival, having a sound, um, I think that first of all, the voice is a spiritual instrument more than it is a physiological one. Mm-hmm. There is physiology, so you have your, your lungs, you have your vocal cords, you have your head, which is the primary resonating body of the instrument. And in order to produce sound, you have to have that physiology. It has to obey you. 
um, you have to be able to use it. If you're mute, it's because the physiology does not obey you. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a voice because a voice, I believe, is a spiritual concept. Mm-hmm. More than like sound is a physiological one, but a voice is something different. A, a right. voice and the your voice and the sound you produce are not exactly the same thing. And the evidence of that is you can listen to somebody that's a great, you know, or you can listen to a singer that has all the notes and all the range and all the licks and the runs, and it's very uninteresting. Like you don't you don't care to listen to them sing twice. Right. And then you can hear somebody that has like a five note range that sounds really gravelly and rough and their tone isn't even that great. And you just immediately know, man, they've been through some stuff and I feel like I You're know so them You're so drawn to it. Yeah. You're drawn to it. And it's because it's anointed. There's something, well, there's something on the airwaves that, that commands empathy. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that there are, we could explain with physics what's happening with the sound. Like, why is it that a singer sings and everybody in the room immediately has this almost like involuntary empathetic response with that singer? Yes. We could probably explain why that empathy is happening by studying the nature of the sound wave. We could look at, uh, if we had the, we had the instrumentation to do it someday, we could look at, well, their vocal cords are functioning in a particular way that are producing sound waves in a way that's resulting in that empathy. So we could trace it all the way back to physiology. But when you go, why is it that that singer is able to produce that sound? and other singers aren't able to, I believe that the ultimate answer to that question is going to be a spiritual one. Yes. It's going to be, it has to do with what's on their spirit that is then being amplified. That is, that is pouring out through the medium of their voice. So then when you talk about revival, what you're saying is every person in the church is have, experiencing their own little mini spiritual revolution inside their own soul. They're experiencing something new and there's no way that that doesn't overflow into a different sound for them individually. And that experience is an encounter with Jesus. Right. And then if it, if it, they're having an encounter. So if every individual in the church is experiencing a spiritual awakening that then is changing the way they sound, that's going to change the way the church sounds collectively. Yeah. And I think, again, I love, I love hearing how you explain it and the direction that you come at it from, from your thought process. Cause I look at that and I would explain it to someone as that singer that people are responding to and having that empathy. It's because of this, um, vulnerability that they are putting out there. They're not, you know, it, their vulnerability causes people to react. And well, I think it all comes together. It's the sound waves. It's that yeah. how, how they're presenting. It is all of those things. And everyone having their own mini revival is they're encountering the Holy spirit mm. through that vocalist, through the vulnerability, you know, God is using them to, um, pour well, that vulnerability out. Vulnerability is a spiritual posture. I mean, mm -hmm. you can be vulnerable and experience different emotions. Yes. And, and what I'm really mapping out here is that you have really any area of life, not just the voice you could map out that you have your, your physiological action, you have an emotional, uh, status, like an, or an emotional posture that then influences what you're able to do physiologically. And this is, I mean, this is, 
if if I was to ask you, you know, what does a depressed person look like? Everybody is going to produce. The, everybody's right. going to give a similar answer. Um, and and research has shown that if you simply get up and walk across the room, um, that it actually, you know, and roll your shoulders back, it it can actually increase your testosterone level and improve your mood. Mm-hmm. And so there is this. It's the reason that people get pets and they 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 immediately feel emotionally healthier. Part of the reason is because they got to take that dog for a walk. And so the fact that they're getting up and moving and now caring for something that's outside of them, it's the physical action of the caring Oh yeah, that has such a profound influence on what's going on emotionally. So there's this connection between physiological and emotional. I love how God created us but that then, way. <laughs> but then there's this, you go a level deeper. If you go, well, I can't control my emotional state. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm talking about with my singers all the time with, with my members um, in the, the community that I run is that a lot of times singers struggle, um, because they can't, the moment they start singing, they go into a, a particular emotional state that is conducive to not singing well. Mm. Um, and this is again, fill in the blank singing, like remove the word singing and just put in any, pretty much any other action. An emotional state is going, has the potential of uh, heavily influencing what you are able or not able to do physiologically. Absolutely. If I get super emotional when I'm singing, like I lose all, like all of a sudden I can't get the sound to come out or it's, I mean, there's different, I either go into it with this, I need perfection and I'm trying, which, right. Which is insecurity, which messes with it. Well, okay. So, so if you go emotional about the words I'm singing, so then the question becomes, if you can't control your emotional state, why is that? Mm hmm. And the answer to that is one level deeper when you move to your spiritual posture, which really is about what you believe. It's what Mm -hmm. you believe about yourself. It's what you believe about God. It's what you believe about reality. Um, And so when you talk about vulnerability or you talk about um, anxiety, uh, which is really more of a complex emotion, but if Mm -hmm. you talk about... um, Fear of, so in the emotional state, you have fear. I'm afraid of messing up. Oh, yeah. Right? That comes from a belief that says, if I mess up, something bad's going to happen. Yes. Right? right. And a lot of performers will feel that. A lot of, I think, just being artists and maybe all creatives, but mm-hmm. I know worship teams, yeah. musicians. Well, when you <sighs> believe, when you believe that the the best the the highest good is to be vulnerable to be seen Mm -hmm. and i would argue that's what we were created for we were created to know god and be known by god to know each other to be known by each other that to be known in order to be known you have to be seen in order to be seen you have to be vulnerable yes so that posture is conducive to an emotional state that is more in line with what God created us for. Mm-hmm. And then when you're more in line on an emotional level with what God created you for, you're more likely that the physiological outcome of that is going to be more in line. Yeah. When you talk about singers, um, specifically, and you say, well, every time you sing, you're in this place of insecurity. Yeah. And you, you're feeling anxious. You're feeling fearful as an emotion. Why is that? Because you're in a spiritual place of insecurity. Um, 
that insecurity comes out of a belief that you're not good enough, that if you mess up, something bad's going to happen, and ultimately the goal is not to be vulnerable. The goal is to be polished. Right. That changes the whole thing, and people go and, – and so, again, when you talk about the sound of revival, what's happening is people are reorienting their beliefs – they're understanding the value of being vulnerable. They have deeper intimacy with Jesus. That results in a different emotional state mm -hmm. in general. Um, chains are falling off, you know, they're, they're, and, and then when they sing, there's a physiological process that's coming out of that. Yeah. And it, there's no way that doesn't change the sound of the individual and then subsequently change the sound of the collective. I think my, it's been interesting because back, I don't know, years back, it would, my, my problem would have been more the anxiety of it or wanting to make sure I do it right, get it right. Um, anymore now, I think I get overwhelmed by the awe of God. And that is the emotional play. And then I'm like, I can't sing. <laughs> Because I'm just so overwhelmed. Well, that's a really common question that I get is how do you, how do you keep singing when you're feeling emotional? And, and we're talking about two different. Yes. This isn't like, the revival, but this if, is. If you're feeling, well, it's a common thing. So this is, it, it's we a, could, I could explain it within the same framework, but ultimately if you're saying, well, how do I, when I'm more in the posture that I should be in. Right. And, uh, I'm feeling super connected and, and, you know, the church is singing and it's over. What do you do? How do you, um, how do you keep, hold your voice together when you're falling apart? Um, I asked Carrie Job that once and, um, she just, her response was, well, I don't. Yeah. I don't so know how do you, you how can. Do you, how do you keep it together? She goes, I don't. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think with that is, why would you try to stifle that moment? Why would you stifle an authentic emotional experience? However, I would add something to it. And mm -hmm. I would say a lot of times, um, the song that you're, so if a particular song is impacting you in a way that is resulting in emotions that are just like overtaking you, mm -hmm. that's going to happen sometimes when you lead. And I think when it happens, you let it. However, I think also leading worship in the church is it's a position of service. You are serving the people you are facilitating experience for them. And sometimes falling apart is the best way to do that. But for me, if I am singing a song that hits me really hard and I know I'm probably going to fall apart when I sing it on Sunday, I am going to sing it 10 times. I'm going to practice it 10 times as much. I'm going to let it wreck me in my own room when mm. I'm by myself as many times as possible. Um, and I don't know if there's like, that's technically like a desensitization, but I, I think it's, it's at least a familiarity Yeah. where I am going to be less likely to fall apart when I'm on stage, not because it becomes less authentic, but just because it hits you in a different I've way. I've processed it differently. Yeah, you've processed it. That's it. You've spent time because when it hits you, it's hitting you for a specific reason. So when it's 
hit you over and over again from that emotional standpoint, you are now in a place where it's still hitting you. You can absorb it. But you can, yeah, you've processed it. You know it's coming. You are ready for it. You're prepared for it. And it doesn't hit you. You don't, because I I don't, I mean, I'm assuming this is for all vocalists, but for me, it's because I tighten up. When those emotions happen, it gets tight. And then it is much harder Mm. to let the voice just flow from that. Um, but, um, yeah, that is, that's really good. The, the more you sit with it and process it, I think, um, the less, I think the emotions can sometimes also happen because they catch you off guard. Right. You aren't expecting to be body slammed by the Holy spirit in your (laughs) vocal. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, the way that we structure church today where there's this, like we're emulating the pros, um, and, and the congregation is listening to the professionals in their car on the way to the service. Mm-hmm. And then they're led by you leading the same song that they were listening to in the car. It, it leads to this feeling of like, okay, when we get on Sunday, I mean, everything about Sunday morning in most churches, even if they, even if they have a healthy culture, even if the worship leaders walk in humility, most of the time, the way we structure it, it, it leads to a feeling of performance. It leads to a feeling mm. of, of presentation. And I understand the argument like, well, it's practical, right? It's like, well, let's put them on a stage because that way it makes it easier for them to lead because everybody can see them. Um, and then it's like, well, let's get some good lighting because when we put them up in the uh, one side of the room, now it's really dark and it's uninviting and you can't see their faces and seeing their, so let's get good lighting. And it's like, well, now we got such a big room and there's so many people here that they can't hear. So let's get a really good sound system. And you know what? This is really stressful. So, um, you know what we need to do is we need to have a really nice room backstage where we can show appreciation to our volunteers and give them breakfast and let them eat prior to the service. All of these are practical, sensible yes. reasons to, to add all of these different elements. But now what happens at the end of this, when it's all said and done, is the congregation comes in and sits. The lights go down in the house. The lights go up on stage. The, the team comes out emerges from the green room where they're completely separate from the congregation, having their special anointed yeah. breakfast. And, <laughs> and then the, the, the sound starts playing, you know, the, the, the musicians start playing and it's the moment that it's starting. And it's now we feel the up, pressure and now we and... feel the pressure that we need to deliver, deliver. Exactly. And then when now we do our, when we do our job well, well, we want to play. Uh, yeah. We want to play music well. We want right. to serve well, right? That's a good thing too. But now every single Sunday we're delivering. So what does the congregation learn? I'm going to come in. I'm going to find my seat, and I'm going to be presented to. And yes. it's going to be great, right? And they and don't just, necessarily feel like they need to play a role in it. No, either in that in that they're. Yeah. Hmm. Now I got to sit and ponder that one for a while. They, they're there to receive it. And hmm. even if they, but I think what happens is even if you talk to people in the congregation where they would go, 
yeah, no, I get it. The pastor is just a, a dude that, you know, um, is struggling with stuff just yeah. like me. Like they're just as sinful as I am. The worship leaders, like I get it. They're, they're not the idea of a professional Christian. Like that's all like, no, that doesn't exist in our church. But all of those elements that I just talked about, like there's no way I think for the majority of churchgoers that that doesn't influence. Yeah. For sure. Your posture when you walk in on Sunday. And I'm not, I'm not proposing that there's a better way to do it. Yeah. I'm not proposing the way we're doing it is wrong. I'm just saying it is a, it's a necessary consequence of all of those little decisions that all made sense. Yeah. Um, it, it changes things. Yeah. And it leads to the belief posture, you know, that, that posture of like, I need to do this right. And if I don't do it right, something bad's going to happen. That leads to insecurity, leads to an emotional state, leads to a different physiological outcome. Which in all of these things you're saying, what I'm hearing and thinking of is, which puts that much more importance that the team that is leading worship understands those things and is really connected to Jesus like every day and all the time. Because it's so much easier to also fall into the, well, this is the every Sunday mm. pattern. Like to be able to break through that a little bit in some way requires the vulnerability coming through yeah. from the worship team. I don't know. That just, yeah. And in order to counteract it a little bit. There, there are churches out there that are probably like, look, yeah, I mean, we pay musicians and we, we pay and we, there's no, why wouldn't we put the best people up there and right. why wouldn't we take this seriously? And it's like, we're in a position of privilege in the Western church where we receive this tithe and, you know, we're economically prosperous in this country. And so the church has, has money to spare. So what do they do? It's like, yeah, we're going to go buy the sounds. Like, it serves our congregation yeah. well. And the, and even the people that are on stage, they love doing a good job for sure. So I, it's not all of it is, it's not a bad, I'm not, thing. I'm not it's, trying to say that it's all evil inherently, no. I, but, um, at the same time, it produces its own challenges. There's, um, again, going back to this idea of, revival having a sound. Yeah. Um, the voice of the church is always going to be more powerful than the voice of the individual. For sure. As long as that sound is unified. You know, if you, you think about the most powerful sound that the church will ever create, I would say probably, um, we see a picture of it in revelation when the 144,000, are singing a song that's just that described as sounding like Niagara Falls. It's a song that only they can learn. And they're, they're standing up on the mountain singing the song as, as, and, and they're just there to watch Jesus basically obliterate the enemy once and for all. Um, and I wonder, you know, what, what that song would sound like. But it's why the reason that song would be so devastating is because they sing it in perfect unison. Hmm. And the only way that Ooh. they would sing it in perfect unison is if they were unified in, in body and spirit as well. Yes. Um, hmm. That their identity is fully defined. 
as being members of the body of Christ. And then, and then that reality, that unity, the awareness of overflows it. into the song that they're singing. Mm-hmm. And so unity is critical to understanding the sound that the church was created to produce and revival is ultimately about the church finding that alignment Mm -hmm. more closely with what it was created for. So, so unity is essential and any part of your church, uh, operations or, or just daily goings on that is not promoting unity. I think is counter to God's vision for the church. Yeah. Makes yes. And so if you've created a mini little celebrity culture inside your church where the pastor and the worship leaders are revered and and special in some way because they have talent, um I think that is potentially problematic. Yeah. I could for sure. I think it's I think it's counter to I think it's counter to revival happening. I think it makes probably think makes unity is difficult. such a big piece of uh, such an, um, integral piece of revival is the power of the whole body coming together instead of being a whole bunch of separate pieces, but actually working together as one. Mm. I mean, we are the body, you know, the hands, the feet, the, so, I mean, a little finger running around over here and a toe running around over there, not all that effective, but yeah. that unity like you're talking about that's so true so can you elaborate on what the church was originally designed to sound like um Hmm. how has that sound evolved or changed any thoughts on that yeah well the first words that we see from a person in scripture in genesis 2 and it's adam singing a love song to eve so it's bone of my bone flesh of my flesh at last all right, I shall call you woman for you taking in, right? And and it's it's this um if you remember the scene in Jerry Maguire when he stumbles into the living room at the end, like the climax of the movie, and he stumbles mm-hmm. in and it's like the the divorcees that are all having like their support group. Yes. His his most famous line of the movie is like you complete you me. You complete me. That's kind of what that song, not to cheapen it. Right. It, for well, people that are like that movie sucks. But right. um it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great I movie. I love Cameron Crowe, but <laughs> Uh, anything Cameron Crowe does, except for Aloha, anything he does, I'm in. Um, but uh, thus far, but that's that's essentially what um, I mean. Cameron Crowe, he's like my, I mean, almost famous. We bought a zoo. Uh, like he's made some of my favorite. Anyway, uh, so um, um, but Adam is is singing like literally. My rib is missing. Um, you, you have it. And I, I think this song, and I believe it's sung cause it's, it's broken into a stanza. So it's the very least poetry, you know, it's, it's no longer in this long form paragraph, like narrative form. It's, it's yeah. broken into a stanza. Um, what's happened. Adam had a sweet deal. He was, he was put in the garden. He was given a job that he was created to do. He, uh, and it, you know, by the way, Adam was given a job before he was given a wife, but he, um, his job was to name and care for all the animals and care for the garden. He got to hang out with Jesus every afternoon and talk to him. 
And I don't think Adam would have complained about his life. If, if you could ask him, you know, what do you not like about this? He's like, this is awesome. Right. But God in his wisdom, knowing Adam better than Adam knew himself said, it's not enough. He needs a companion. So he, he knocked Adam out, took his rib fashion deep. He wakes him up. He introduces them to each other. And then they are married right there on the spot. Jesus is the officiant. And Adam's response is to bust out in this love song. And I think it's because nothing else would have made sense for him mm. in that moment. Um, I love that. And I mm. think, first of all, it was the world's first corporate worship service. Adam and Eve were joined together, um, being married together, um, joined together in marriage, rather. Mm -hmm. Worshiping Jesus together for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whatever Adam sounded like in that moment is what we were created to sound like. Because sin had not, uh, their rebellion it hadn't entered, hadn't the picture entered yet. into the picture yet. So he was perfectly aligned physically, per- perfectly aligned spiritually. And he was, would have been overwhelmed with gratitude and adoration for Jesus because of this gift, the gift of Eve that he had just been given. So whatever that sounds like, that's what we were created to sound like. And then whatever Adam and Eve sounded like when they sang and worshiped together, that was a picture of unity. And whatever they sounded like the first night after they were kicked out of the garden was a step away from that, from what they were created for. So I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but if we look like, I don't know the answer of what did they sound like in the garden but what we can answer, I think, is why don't we sound that way anymore? Mm, and yeah. what do we need to eliminate from our lives, from our spirits, in order to get back to that place that Adam and Eve were in? Of just raw, at the scene of their wedding. Worship. Yeah. What was it? How do we strategically, um, as a church, create cultures that um, are going to enable us to inch closer toward that rather than further away from it. Um, And one of the things that I I always, I tell this story a lot when I teach classes to worship leaders. And the thing that I always ask worship leaders is about it, you know, you picture this scene with Adam and Eve. Do you think that after the ceremony, when Adam and Eve uh, you know, Adam had sung his glorious song and uh, praise of God, you know, adoration, everything. Did he pull Eve aside afterward and say, what did you think of the high note on the bridge? <laughs> nope. No. Nope. Um, he would have exist. I mean, it's all about Jesus. I wonder if, if he was even now that's not to say no shame here. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I, now that I said that I have to do this, right. I have to, I have to affirm <laughs> no, it's all the good. worship leaders out there yes. because, because here's what happened. Every worship leader has had this experience where you walk off stage and you feel really bad oh, about what you just been did there, done that. And then you walk up to somebody and you're like, hey, what are you know? How did it sound? Like, what are the? And they're like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't know. 
um, I was worshiping. I was really wasn't paying attention. And you're like, oh, good. That was right. what you should be doing. <laughs> and then they'll, and then the person realizes, oh, I need to console you because you're insecure. And so what they do to console you is they say, don't worry. Jesus was worshiped and that's what matters. And then yeah. that makes the worship leader feel even worse <laughs> because they realize that that's not good enough for them. Oh. They go, I actually don't feel better by right. that statement, which then reveals something about my heart posture. Right. And so what I always tell worship leaders is no, what, but what I tell worship leaders is no, that's not true. It's possible for two things to be true at once. It's possible for you to value the fact that Jesus was worshiped and also be upset about the fact that things are not as they were intended to be in the garden. The experience that you just had with your voice is not the experience that Adam had with his voice in that ceremony. And you can be upset by that. You can be upset about the fact that your voice is not as it was created to be. Yeah. And you can celebrate the fact that Jesus was worshiped in spite of that. Amen. So no shame for the fact that Adam didn't right. ask Eve about the high note. Yeah. And you did. When you walked <laughs> off stage this past Sunday, you asked yes. everybody that you saw, how was the high note did on the bridge? Did, did you hear me shriek? Did you hear me break? Did you hear me forget oh, the lyric? Oh, I lost it. Oh, yeah, no. Did you hear me accidentally was... cuss on the microphone? Right. Like, <laughs> like not, not shaming you for that. Right. Um, and definitely not shaming you for not getting comfort. When somebody said, don't worry, Jesus was worshiped and not shaming you for the fact that then when that didn't make you feel better and then somebody recognized it didn't make you feel better. And they said, I think your heart might not be in the right place. Oh, um, no, your, your heart can be in the right. You can value Jesus being glorified. This is, this is ultimately, by the way, the reason that singers need to take their craft seriously is because the more confident you are with your voice, the less you're going to focus on it. Yeah. There are some worship leaders that get this backwards and they say, well, the better I am, the more compliments I'm going to get, the more complicated compliments I get, the more I'm going to, the better I'm going to feel, the better the... I'm going to feel. And then my, that, that reveals. So I need to actually, <laughs> I've had people argue this before. I need to, I need to get my heart right before I start working on my voice. I'm like, that doesn't work. The more that you struggle with your voice, the more your heart is going to um, remind you that you are in, that you are insecure, that you're like, you're never going to get to a place of spiritual health that is solid enough to not be insecure when you completely screw up. Right. Because when you... If you actually get to the point where like, if you, if you suck at singing and you don't care, um, you know, you become like one of those people where it's just like, oh yeah, they just, I make a joyful noise. Right. And, and ultimately they're, they are insecure about it. They've just yes. convinced themselves they to convince ignore themselves it. that this is, and, and if you're somebody who, if you're an artist that God has created to sing, created to appreciate great music, like you're just, it's not actually healthy for you to get to a place where you're not bothered by your voice, not oh. doing what it's supposed to do. So anyway, the, the, the point of it is that when you discipline your voice, a la first Corinthians nine, like you discipline your body, you keep it under control so that it obeys you and you are confident 
and disciplined so that your voice can be the overflow of the spiritual authenticity that you carry with you onto the stage. Mm -hmm. That is the only way that you're going to be able to not be overwhelmed with that insecurity that happens that leads you to ask people about the high note on stage. Right. You yeah. have to discipline the physiology. The physiology, what, what Paul is acknowledging, by the way, in that passage is that his body is an opponent. Like 1 Corinthians 9 is all about his mission and the gospel, and he's acknowledging in 9.24 that his, his flesh is this opponent that, can, that is rising up to try to prevent him from accomplishing his task. Worship leaders understand what it's like to have a body that doesn't obey you. Oh, you know, yeah. worship leaders are like, hey, voice, let's hit this note and that mm. way with this tone and this confidence. And the voice <laughs> is like, no, I'm going to do what I want. Yes. And so you have to, you have to physiologically discipline that voice so that it's no longer a factor. So that it's, so that it's beaten into submission. You know, it's that you just get the gnat out of, out of the way so I can accomplish my spiritual task that I've been given. The physiology, your voice, your physiological voice is the vehicle through which you are accomplishing your task. And it is also the primary opponent that is trying to prevent you from accomplishing it. So you have to train your voice physiologically so that it gets out of the way. Yeah. Um, so that you can use it the way it was, you know, for the purpose that God's given it to you in the first place. Man, this is just so much great. Like, it's just so good. I love hearing all of this. We keep wandering from our objective it's a little bit. No, but it's all it related all fits, to the voice though. The, but, but that's, man, that's it's the, so good. The sound I want to hear all this stuff. The, it is. Yeah. The point of the, the sound, the, the whole thing was that you wanted to ask me was about the sound of revival. Yes. It's all interconnected. It is. Um, because a church that, you know, the difference between excellence and achievement church gets this wrong a lot. A church that's focuses on achievement is going to say, well, great music. There's great music in the world outside the church. And so there's no reason that the church shouldn't sound just as good as that. So let's sound just as good as that. Mm -hmm. And what happens is like, well, logically I get that argument and I, and I don't necessarily have a problem with it at face value. The problem comes in that now what you're doing is you're focusing only on the outcome and you're saying we need to go by, by any means necessary to get the desired outcome, which is we're not going to be shown up by the world. Right. Excellence. Again, I was talking about this earlier is about process. It's about faithfulness. Faithfulness implies that you are stewarding your gift. Well, and if you steward your gift, well, typically the outcome is pretty darn good. Uh, and so when you start talking about, you tie this to revival has a sound, a church that is completely focused on outcome and is willing to get that outcome by any means necessary is never going to experience revival. But a church that is focused on faithfulness and stewardship is going to be brought gradually into more alignment with the purpose for which they were created, the purpose for which they exist. And when there is a pouring out of the Holy spirit on that church for the purpose of revival, I mean, I, I would say, if you, I guess to caveat, you know, just to 
check myself a little bit. Like if, if you have a church that is focused on achievement, again, God can use whatever he wants, you know, however he wants. And so, yeah, he can wreck a church that has the wrong priorities, but, but see in that, within that statement implies that in order for that church that's hyper-focused on achievement to experience revival, God is going to have to reorder their priorities. It's interesting. I, and I wish I could remember the details of it so I could give credit where credit is due. There was, um, it was a coach. I don't know if it was basketball. I don't remember what sport it was, but he'd been coaching for, you know, 20 odd years or whatever, and hadn't ever won the championship and was like, I'm going to quit. I'm not affected. And he prayed about it. And God was like, I want you to keep going like you're doing, but I want you to give the first half of your practice time to me. And he was like, and he told his team this and they were, everyone was reluctant because no, we need more time practicing. We need more time getting it right. We need to get our technical stuff. And they started spending the first half of their practice time praying and all of, you know, focusing on God. And the second half of practice was practicing and they outperformed anything they'd ever done and went on to win championships mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And it was, I mean, the idea behind the story was that, you know, God will make use of the time that you have. Like I'm, I'm here, I'm saying that because I'm thinking of the, the church that's trying so hard to check all the boxes to get it technically right. And, and, but the difference in focusing, and I can't remember the exact word you used, but when your focus is on God and I mean, I, it, the, yeah. it's a little well, off from what I, you said, but I think I that, I, I think feel that like... ultimately it's what I'm saying is the difference is outcome versus process. Yes. If, if you are focused on the outcome, there are a lot of different ways to get the outcome that you have envisioned for yourself. When you are going through the process prop, ultimately when it comes specifically to leading worship, if you're focused on the outcome and you have not been faithful through your process, you haven't stewarded well, you haven't prepared well, right? then all you have is I walk on stage, I try to control the outcome as best I can, and either I succeed or I fail. And if I succeed, it's what a relief. And if yeah. I fail, it's I knew that was going to happen. Right. If you are focused on process and you believe that, that what God has asked you to do is to be faithful leading up to the point that you walk on stage, then when you walk on stage, you can say, okay, Lord, I've done my part. Now the rest is mm -hmm. up to you. Yes. And when you fall on your face, you can say, well, that was meant to happen. <laughs> um, Yes. Because it's not on you. The pressure isn't on you because you've done everything you've done that you your... were asked to do. Right. Right. And so um, bringing it back to this idea of the sound of revival, um, there's when you have a team that is, uh, and really an entire church that is being faithful, focusing on process, um, you know, f focusing on, on stewardship, focusing on unity. Um, the outcome is often beautiful. Mm. Uh, the, the, the music they produce should be beautiful. The, the preaching that happens should be captivating. The lighting design can be amazing. The sound design can be amazing. 
because every individual is going through a process that leads to it being really good. But you know that you're focused on achievement when, uh, you know, the creative director of the church, all they can see is not, not the faithfulness that led to the service as it is, but what they see is the errors that resulted mm. in a lack of achievement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so then the, the post-conversation is just about... It's a different perspective. About, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's a paradigm it's, shift. It's the same. You can have two services that look very identical, I think, that have completely different... Uh, a completely different focus in terms of, of what they value and ultimately why they value the, the, the fact that the service is, is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are spiritual implications to that difference. Right. Because when you're only focused on achievement, that is going to promote disunity. Um, and at the end of the day, if what we if what we want as a church is revival, if what we want is wildfire spreading, that it's going to go wider, just to kind of bring it full mm. circle to what we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast. Bring it twenty twenty four. We're going to go wider with the number of people that are coming to Jesus, right? But we're going to go deeper with the kind of Jesus that people are experiencing as individuals in the church. Um, the outcome of that has to be an expression of unity has to be a different emotional a different emotional posture not you know it's not it's not going to be characterized a reviving church is not going to be characterized by worship leaders that are feeling insecure about their voices while they're leading yeah it's going to be characterized by um worship leaders that are disciplined faithful excited excellent Mm-hmm. producing beautiful sound and there's going to be an expression of unity in sound that can only occur not because we've achieved great things as a church but because we're we're unified spiritually when we're unified spiritually that's going to result in a different kind of sound and and going back to just thinking about Jehoshaphat, how unified on a spiritual level must that army have been Mm. to march confidently into a battle that they had no business fighting. Yeah. No chance of like every single person in that army rationally should have been their mindset should have been, we are walking to our death. And can you imagine the, like the dissension in the ranks of the lower people questioning the authority of the higher people? I can just see it in like in today's world and things I've been involved in of people. They don't know what they're doing. They haven't ever been in my position. I don't remember like what could have been, which obviously wasn't in order for them to be so unified the way. Yeah. The way I picture that, and and, and I'm sure there were varying degrees of confidence and varying degrees of, of spiritual, um, yeah, spiritual confidence, spiritual power within each, each person, you know? Um, but the way I imagine that, I don't think that the members of the army were walking into battle going, man, I, I hope that God actually show, I don't know. I don't uh-uh. think this is going to happen. No. I'm, I, oof, I think Jehoshaphat is delusional and that, Oh, look at that. God actually did show up. 
I think that they were walking together in a unified they were faith. They in confidence. They, and, and, uh, they really trusted God. Just the fact that they were, I mean, and, and I don't know that that's spelled out in the text. Probably not. In, in terms of, um, like what the posture of each individual soldier was. Right. But, but that, I think that probably anytime we read that story without realizing it, we do picture an army of individuals that are each on their, on our own individual level, confident in what, in what God spoke to the prophet and what Jehoshaphat yeah. told. When Jehoshaphat said, Hey, the prophet came to me, he says, God's going to deliver us that he's going to give us the victory. Um, I'm sure they were so fearful on some level at times there's a little bit of back and forth going on in their spirit over like, you know, just as any of us would experience, I'm sure that that was, but I also believe probably the Holy spirit came upon them and gave them confidence. And that was an expression of unity. That's the kind of expression that we need to have in the church. If revival is going to happen and there's no way that doesn't result in a glorious sound. Ooh. Oh, yes. So looking at history, can you share examples of how the church's voice has played a pivotal role in moves of God? Well, I mean, we, you know, we've talked about already in the with Bible, Jehoshaphat, right. um, mm -hmm. and, and in scripture, we see it again with Paul and Silas, uh, being thrown in prison in, in the book of Acts, you know, and they, they start singing a hymn and God responds by shaking the prison. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I mean, every single Sunday there are there are battles being going on, you know, going on in people's lives and people's hearts, um, depression and arguments with children and with spouses. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, the longer I'm on this earth, the more I realize how much difficulty there is, uh, and mm. every single person you meet, there's something going on in yes. their lives, um, that is difficult. And, um, there are spiritual battles being won every time we get together as a church. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if we did a, a, a historical study of the church in moments of revival, um, this is interesting, just interesting thing to think about that I haven't, I haven't uh, gotten into yet really, but, it would be interesting to see if there are things written about what the church sounded like in each moment of arrival mm -hmm. um, to just to see, to draw parallels because I bet there are some. Well, and I think of also, honestly, I mean, just the power of worship to change hearts, to change minds, like the role that worship and the sound play in, um, I just, I, I'm not articulating it very well, but I think in my mind, I have this vision of this amazing sound that just has moved the people to the place where there, it creates that unity. There's just the coming together. I feel like that, um, fits with your obviously much more technical and in-depth understanding of things. I'm, I'm very surface level when I'm saying these things, but I just, I can't help but think of how God moves through the worship. And when we as worship leaders allow, get ourselves in the right place for that and allow him to do that and how powerful it is in that, um, 
moving towards revival. And I do believe the church is very much moving in that direction right now. Um, how can the church today rediscover or align in order to have a greater impact on society and spirituality? That's a really big question. It is. Um, I think probably my belief is that if the church is going to impact society overall, it's got to simplify its message that simplify the message that is brought to people that are not in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I believe that is because when you look at Jesus's relationship with the disciples, he didn't teach them everything at once. He didn't, he didn't teach them everything that was right and wrong. Uh, so in other words, if you're, if you're talking with somebody that lives in sin and you know, say it's, you got a boyfriend and girlfriend, they're living together and they're not, they're not married. What is, what is the message the church needs to bring to them? Jesus loves you and he, he wants yes. to have a relationship with you. If somebody is is homosexual, um, what message do they need to hear? Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. If uh, somebody is participating in witchcraft, what message do they need? Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Um, somebody is a, a dealing with addiction of any kind, what's their message they, they need to hear? Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. After you they get that, then you can start moving on to other stuff. Yeah. And, and, and so I think the shift that how the church can impact culture is by convincing them that Jesus loves them and wants a relationship with them, not by convincing them that they are wrong for their lifestyle choices. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. I can think of all kinds of ways to respond to that, but the, you said it all. It's very true. Um, are there specific characteristics or elements in the sound of revival that people should be attuned to collective or individual. Is there, I think it's just vulnerable and it's, it's unified. Mm-hmm. It's a collective unified vulnerability. What role does worship play in shaping that? Well, I think worship is everything. Uh, I mean, worship is, this is worship. Yes. Getting up in the morning is worship. Cooking food for your family is worship. Yes. It's all about, worship is about a posture. Like we're going to worship something always. We're going to value something mm-hmm. over everything else. And when everything you do expresses a valuing of Jesus above everything else, um, I think I think more authentic, more vulnerable worship is probably more of an outcome of revival. I don't know that we can yeah. force revival by worshiping harder or trying harder. But I think the outcome, I think when revival happens, um, it's going to result in more vulnerable, more authentic worship. And so then, then I think the obvious question is, well, what, what can we do then? Like the way I'm talking about it it makes it sound like revival is something that happens to the church rather than something that that the church really creates. Yeah. Um, But with that, I think, 
uh, there's a parallel with we we talk about God's plan for salvation. Um, God's plan for salvation is is Jesus, but God's plan for communicating um, and and spreading that salvation is the church. So, um, and and you know, you you see uh, anytime there's healing, anytime there's um, in, in the in the gospels when you see uh, Jesus heal people, a lot of times um, Jesus says, you know, your faith has healed you. And there are these people that come with this meek posture, um, and like, like think about the woman that just wanted to touch like the fringe of Jesus's robe, and she'd been she bankrupt herself, bankrupted herself trying to you know, paying doctors and everything. And she couldn't get answers. And she just believed if I can just, I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to talk to him. I'm not going to ask him for healing. If I can just touch his touch robe, his robe. Um, I can get healing. And, and everybody's touching Jesus. He's, he's crowded. Everybody's crowded around him. And she touches his robe and she immediately gets healed. And it says that he felt the power. It's like, to my knowledge, it's the only time that he didn't consciously choose to heal the person that got healed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, but he feels the power and he goes, who touched me? Who did that? Yeah. Who touched me? And everybody's like, what are you talking about? Everybody Everybody's touched you. touching you. Um, now this leads to, I think what is an irresponsible teaching, which is, you know, if you just have more faith then you'd be healed. Right. No, no, no. Jesus is the one that heals. The Holy spirit is the one that heals. Yes. But the, but faith plays a role. The church has a role. I, I think that I don't know that God is going to pour out revival on a faithless church. Hmm. Good word. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, revival is dependent on an outpouring of the Holy spirit, but faith when it comes to, and revival is a miracle and miracles. I, I don't, I don't exactly have it mapped out mathematically. <laughs> I, I don't quite understand. Still trying to figure it out. Like what, what it means when he says your faith has made you well, but for a miracle to happen, our faith has to play a role. Well, and I had a friend once who sat and, you know, when we were in ministry school and went through and found all of the places where, um, Jesus healed someone and she mapped out how he did it. And it was different every time. And we talked about how, you know, we believe that so that we didn't try and create a specific formula that people would always follow because it's not about the formula. It's about Jesus. Yeah. It's not about, Oh, but I checked all the boxes. How come this didn't work? No, it's about Jesus. Yeah. And we as humans are going to try and create the method in the system. Um, but I, I always think back to that and I'm like, when I try and go, Oh, did I do it right? Did I? And I'm like, wait a minute. It's not, it's not that I've, I've shifted my focus. The focus is Jesus. What else would you like people to understand? Is there anything else about the church's voice and revival? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you're, you'd like? I think just that God cares about it deeply. Um, I think that people are tempted to believe that their voice, that the only voices that really matter are the ones that are on a microphone hmm. um, or, or the ones that you know are on the recordings they listen to. We very much live in a listening culture Ever since record players started entering people's living rooms, yes. we could listen to music instead of making music. Mm-hmm. And so now that has progressed to the point where you have 
every song in the world available on your phone and you can listen to it at a moment's notice anytime you want. And so the, the need to, to create music is at an all time low and it leads to people believing, or it makes it easier for people to believe that if they don't produce music, it's okay. Right. And I don't agree with that. I think that, mm. that God took a lot of pride, even for somebody who struggles to match pitch. The reason you struggle to match pitch more often than not is not because God didn't give you a voice that's capable of sounding beautiful. It's because you have not cultivated it. And so you have made a life. I mean, and it's, you've grown up in a culture where you were never asked to make music. Yeah. And so, um, the biggest thing is that, that people need to understand is that your voice matters no matter who you are, because God created your voice. He gave you a voice. He was intentional with it. And he intended for you to use it. Yeah. I love that. So, um, you've got so much going on. How can people find you if they want to connect or learn more about your amazing vocal coaching and the things that you're doing? Yeah. jeffmathena.com uh, is, is the website. Um, and at Jeff Mathena is my Instagram and, uh, there, you start searching that there, there are resources available, uh, for people that are wanting to get started. Um, you know, I'm not able to take on many, many clients today. I don't spend that much time in one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, that's usually a question is, you know, how can I, right. can I work with you and receive coaching? And I get um, asked that question about you and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> He has That's just, an amazing app. It's just not, uh, it's not within my capacity right now to take yeah. on a lot of clients. Um, and so, uh, so that's usually, I, I do have an associate coach that, uh, has a little bit of availability as of this recording, but, um, but yeah, jeffmathena.com and, and jeffmathena Instagram, that's a good place to, to start and, and to start consuming resources that I've created that are designed to help individuals get to know their voice better. That's awesome. Thank you so much for all of this. I don't know. This may even be three podcasts. We'll see. I don't know how long we've been talking, but just go Joe Rogan styles three it, hours. It's just been such good information that, um, I'm really, I'm grateful for you and for you taking the time to talk to us and share your wisdom. It's always a lot of fun. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yay. As always, thank you for joining us for the Salty and Shiny Life podcast, where we seek to encourage each other to live a life of salt and light. You can find me on Instagram at Erin Mathena or online at ErinMathena.com or counseling at MathenaConsulting.com. Now go out into the world and live a life that shines for him.